0: Thank you for listening to Quest Church San Diego. If you would like to know more about us, please visit us online at questsd.com. Again, that's questsd.com. If this podcast has been an encouragement to you, or if you would like to know more about Jesus, please email us at info at questsd.com. Thank you for listening. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. It's exciting to be studying this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ through Mark's perspective because Mark takes a little different approach. It's uh, the shortest of the gospels and uh, Mark isn't uh, so much concerned about including a lot of Jesus' teaching but really his actions and his deeds. So we entitled this series Servant Savior because Mark is looking at the servanthood of Jesus, and that's really recorded in the main, like, kind of key verse of the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that says, Jesus speaking of himself, I have come not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so, Jesus in this verse, gives us a picture of not only his service, but also his sacrifice with wearing the crown of thorns on the cross, but also the servant's towel to not only wash the disciples' feet, but also to give us the example of uh, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, learn to be a servant of all. So we're looking at this theme, and uh, last week we were introduced to the servant savior In chapter 1, where Jesus begins his ministry with urgency, as well as secrecy. Urgency, because there's a word that Mark uses, depending on your translation, over 40 times in this gospel. And the word is immediately. There's a lot of action. Jesus is busy healing bodies and saving souls. And uh, there's a lot of action and movement. In fact, many scholars would call the gospel of Mark... Christ in action because we see Jesus serving and ministering. And chapter 1 actually is, uh, the majority of chapter 1 is uh, covering just one day. And so Jesus is healing people privately. He's healing people publicly. He's healing individuals, but he's also healing the multitudes as they would all come from the surrounding regions and just a desire to be touched and healed by Jesus. So we had a, a very simple introduction Last week to this gospel. And uh, it really jumps into action pretty quickly. Because Mark doesn't include any genealogies of Jesus. Or any Old Testament prophecies of Jesus fulfilling in his birth. Or even birth stories. We jump right into his ministry. And before that there are two very uh, simple events. Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation. So we saw John the Baptist as Someone who would prepare the way for Jesus, preaching a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sin and being ready for the Messiah. We also saw Jesus' temptation for 40 days in the wilderness, in isolation and loneliness, fasting and praying. And we see there that Jesus understands and sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. He was tempted in all the ways that we are tempted. Yet he was perfect, sinless, and without, he was without sin. But he also gives us that hope and that comfort when we go through those types of experiences as well. And Jesus showed us the best way to conquer the lies of Satan by trusting and depending upon the truth of Scripture. We can rely on the truth of God's Word when we're tormented with the lies of Satan. When he plants those really deceitful thoughts and lies in our heads. And so uh, but then the the bulk of chapter one dealt with the compassion of Jesus as he ministered and as he preached and it was very busy. but there was one verse that we kind of did a summary last week of the end of chapter one, so we didn't cover it specifically, but the verse talks about how very early in the morning Jesus rose early, went to a lonely and isolated place to pray It's such a wonderful picture of of Jesus giving us that example of being refreshed and renewed. We were talking about this, uh, you know, this past week at the senior study on Thursday afternoon, 12 to 2 p.m. Anyone is welcome to to join us. You don't have to be a, a senior youth citizen. <laughs> we like to say it's the senior youth group. So, um, But uh, if you have a time off, you know, like maybe a lunch break and you wanted to join the Bible study, that's available as well. But we were talking about the benefits of getting alone and unplugging. And it's so important even now. I mean, there's so many voices, so, so much input, uh, so many things that are hitting us, whether it's, you know, media or, or television or uh, whether it's even social media and just always connected. What's very fascinating is that we're more connected than ever before. But even in that connection, we feel more lonely. Than we've ever felt before. And why is that? Because these types of connections aren't really solving the need and the desire that we have in our lives to have a relationship with God. We can have relationships with a bunch of people and those relationships are great and wonderful. But if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then you'll always be wanting more. There'll never be satisfaction. And so uh, Jesus prays. And really, prayer is the business of heaven when the busyness of life becomes a burden, right? It's going to the Lord in prayer. It's spending time with him and being refreshed and getting his perspective and his thoughts and his purpose and his heart uh, because the majority of our week is filled and consumed with busyness and activity And the tyranny of the urgent is uh, what one of the books that I read recently said. There's this tyranny of urgency always pressing us, and it will push out what's really important and the priority of spending time with Jesus. So uh, we see him continuing this ministry on in chapter 2. Like I said, there's a bunch of really good stuff here, and uh, it's, it's great to just dig into this as we see the title of the message today, or really kind of the focus of this chapter, is that Jesus is not only the servant Savior, but he's also the friend of sinners. And this is where Jesus starts to get criticism from the religious establishment, because Jesus is doing something new and doing something fresh, and he seems to be breaking the religious customs and traditions, but in this radical movement of grace that Jesus is bringing, it is really bumping up against the rigid, uh, you know, methods of the law in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is going to say that I'm bringing new wine, and you can't put new wine in old wineskins, or this is I'm not coming to patch up the old, but to really bring something radical. And so uh, the point for us to remember today is that Jesus brings rebellious embarrassment to the religious establishment. And so he's going to be criticized by the religious establishment. Those are the Pharisees and the scribes. And it's it's going to look like Jesus is being quite rebellious. And I actually think Jesus is quite radical. If you read the Gospels really with fresh eyes, you see how radical he is. And sometimes, whether it's in church or liturgy or tradition or custom or rules, you have to remember, back in the Old Testament, there was ten commandments. But the religious uh, rulers created thousands of rules and regulations and burdens that were put on people. And Jesus actually called the Pharisees and the scribes out because even though they were requiring the people to follow all these hundreds if not thousands of rules, they weren't willing to follow them themselves. And so Jesus said they're hypocrites. And these rules and traditions and regulations can sometimes uh, quench the fresh move of the Holy Spirit in your life or in the life even of a church. And so uh, we're going to see this in four simple ways. First, we're going to see Jesus condemned for forgiving sin. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus criticized for feasting or fraternizing. That's kind of an interesting word there, but you know what I mean. For spending time with sinners. Thirdly, we're going to see Jesus confronted about fasting. And then lastly, we're going to see Jesus convicted for forsaking certain religious laws and rules. A lot of good stuff to get into. We're going to jump right into verse 1, Mark chapter 2. And again, Jesus entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, in the previous chapter, at the end of chapter 1, Jesus was in a house, and that was Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And the scripture there says that the entire town came out and were knocking at the door Of this home and wanting to get in and be touched by jesus and i find that interesting because uh in the book of revelation you see jesus uh actually going to people's lives and knocking on the door of their heart or knocking on the door of their life and in this instance when you know during his life and ministry people are coming on to to knock on jesus's door but the greatest knock or the most wonderful invitation that you could ever accept is to accept Jesus Christ into your life, to accept Jesus Christ into your home or into your, your your problem or your sickness or in these instances in these chapters into your infirmities or into your distresses. And Jesus will come in and bring his sense of peace, his touch. At the end of chapter one, we saw Jesus heal a leper. And a leper was somebody who was an outcast from society because of the skin problem that they had Affecting their body, you know, through physical touch, it would spread. So they lost all means of employment. They lost closeness with family and friends. They couldn't live within the city. And Jesus does something radical. He reaches out and touches the man. And there's probably a very long time because the text says that this was a, a well advanced stage of leprosy. And uh, Jesus is not, he's not grossed out by our grossness. In fact, the cross of Jesus really heals all the grossness of our lives. He'll reach out and touch. And so it's just such a beautiful picture. But as he's in the house, there's so many people. You've got to remember the context here. Just in a very short while, there are large crowds following Jesus. And immediately, verse 2, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. And uh, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. This is such a cool uh, life group. This is the home Bible study. This is the home fellowship that is really rocking. I love it to see Jesus in our, in our home fellowships or our life groups where the word is being taught and people are pressed into the living room and to the kitchen and, and, and around the table. And we're just listening to Jesus share the word with us. But uh, these homes weren't big homes in a town like Capernaum, there were multi-generational homes. Grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, sons and daughters, grandchildren, granddaughters, even great-grandchildren are packed into these small little homes. And so there's a lot of people, there's a lot of need. And uh, Jesus is preaching the word. That's the most important. How do, you, how do you minister to people who are in need? You preach the word. You teach them the word. You share them the word. Jesus says, if you want to make disciples, you teach them to follow all the things that I have commanded them. Uh, and so it's a privilege to be uh, looking at God's word together continually. And verse 3 says, and then they came to him. They is a group of four men who had a friend in need. And he was bound to a sickbed. Uh, he was a paralytic. And they came to Jesus bringing a paralytic who was carried By four men. These are some really good friends, right? They're helping out the friend who is in need. And when the crowd, excuse me, and when they could not come near Jesus because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And so when he had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, just circle that phrase right there in the person's Bible sitting behind you. Just go ahead right now. You can turn around. Well, maybe if you don't write in your Bibles, you can just do like a no, you cannot, do not pass, do not write in my book sort of thing. But this is a very important phrase. They, Jesus saw their faith on two fronts. He's actually looking at the friend's faith, and then there's something visible about faith, which is pretty remarkable because faith seems to be uh, immaterial, it's actually invisible. And uh, we place this faith as a decision and as a choice and as a dependence upon Jesus. And biblical faith basically means trust. And so Jesus, looking at the faith of these four men, then turns to the paralytic on the bed and says, Your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blas- blasphemies like this? Here comes The criticism. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which is a really good question. And the answer to that question is sitting right in front of them. The answer is that Jesus is God. And he has come as the promised Messiah. The Christ, the anointed one. So the answer is in the question. But they're not willing and ready to accept that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them. Now that's interesting because Jesus knows perfectly what we think and say privately. He knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. He can see past whatever's going on, whatever outward appearance we've got going on. He sees right into our hearts and uh, into our thoughts. And Jesus says, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Which one do you think is easier to say? It's probably easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because who can verify whether that has been accomplished? You can't see it. You can't know it. It's uncertain. But if you were to say, get up from your bed and start walking, well, he does that in just a few verses. And all the people in the In the town and in the home, they all glorify and they're amazed. They say, we've never seen anything like this before. But Jesus addresses the real problem, the real need. And he says, which is easier. And in verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose Took up the bed and went out of the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, "We have never seen anything like this before." Now I wanted to look up into our roof and see whether or not we're going to have something fall apart up there, you know, like tearing down. But you know, we still have room. We've got room here in some of these chairs, so we can sit. We can still fit more people in this place. But as people come to Jesus, there is this great need, and these friends. I just see a couple of things here. This there's a lot of good stuff, but. You know, in these opening verses, we see that Jesus is condemned for forgiving sin. But under the surface, we see that there is these friends that have a desire to help. They want to help their friend. And uh, you can imagine this man who was a paralytic. Listen, we don't know exactly how long he was on this bed or... He couldn't walk and he couldn't get around, so he was dependent on, upon people. Uh, maybe he was taken to the front of the temple and he was begging and asking for a little bit of money just to get by. Maybe he went from, from house to house or marketplace to marketplace, and the only way he could do that was by friends. And so he was completely dependent upon other people. But uh, I just love how these friends really had a heart and, uh, and compassion. And I just thought that you know the greatest friends that you and I can have are the ones that would bring us closest to Jesus. Those who would encourage us and support us. Those who would pick us up in our weaknesses and in our infirmities and in our illnesses and in our inabilities and come alongside. So it's kind of on two fronts. One is what kind of friends do we have surrounding us? The greatest ones are, are, are not necessarily the hundreds or thousands that are just on your Facebook social media friends list. (laughs) How many of those have you spoken to -to face-to-face this last week? Listen, I'm not criticizing because I have a ton of friends as well on social media, and it's great to stay connected. But those greatest friends are the ones that are coming alongside you and bringing you closest to Jesus, those who are praying for you, those who are supporting you, those who are encouraging you and helping you. And uh, I came across a phrase this past week just in reading Some of the commentaries, because it's interesting how Jesus looked at the four men, but then he addressed the man who was on the sickbed. And this phrase, borrowed faith, came up. And I thought that's an interesting phrase. But uh, more specifically, there is an influence and an impact, not only to have friends who are bringing us close to Jesus, but also to be friends who have faith in Jesus, that people who don't have faith in Jesus would look at our faith in Jesus because it's visible and in action and real and say, you know what? Maybe they can help me. Maybe they have the answer. Maybe they can pick me up and walk me through whatever pain or agony or distress I'm experiencing. And never underestimate The influence or impact that borrowed faith can have on a battered friend in your life. Someone who is down and out. Someone who doesn't know where to turn. Someone who is dependent upon anybody and everybody. But for us to have that type of faith and trust and to pick people up. And really, these friends also, this faith, they weren't going to allow anything to keep them from coming to Jesus. I mean, Jesus saw their faith, but I'm sure the homeowner saw his roof, right? I mean, it's like, come on, bro. You're like breaking my house. That's not a home fellowship host home's dream, right? And, uh, you know, there is this sense of urgency and sincerity. And there's just nothing that's going to keep these men from bringing this friend to Jesus. But notice what Jesus does. He addresses the real problem and the real need. Listen, even though this man was confined to a sickbed, His bigger need was that he was condemned to a sin bed. He had a disease of sin that was affecting all of his life. And the forgiveness that he needed to receive from God was more important to address than uh, the physical infirmity. However, Jesus does both. Listen, Jesus knew that it is no good to have two whole legs but walk straight into hell. Fix the body but not address the soul. You know, Jesus also said, what will you give in exchange for your soul? There's nothing that you can give in exchange for your soul. In fact, Jesus was exchanged on the cross in his sacrifice, in his beating, in his crucifixion. He was the great exchange on the cross so that we could be forgiven, that we could be delivered, that we could be healed. It's no good to have a physical body that is completely whole and healthy, but a soul that is depleted and drained. And Jesus addresses the greatest need. And he saw the faith of the friends. And I guess the question we would have to ask ourselves is, can we see my faith? Is there evidence of my faith? Because faith is undoubtedly believable when it is undeniably visible. And it's visible for people to see. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, said in his letter... You have faith? Great. Well, I'll show you my faith by what I do, how I live my life. And so, I guess we would examine ourselves in texts like this. Can we see faith in action in my life? And Jesus addresses the physical need. He talks to these great friends who are ministering to uh, their friend in need. But then there's the hostility, right? The help comes, the healer is Present, but the hostility is also present as well. Criticism. How dare you forgive sin? Now you can't blame these guys all that much. That's a pretty bold statement, at least at this point. Not really understanding that the Christ, the Messiah, is right here, present with them. And uh, it seems very blasphemous on the surface. But Jesus does something to ease the concerns of the religious rulers. And it really should have brought them great comfort and hope and uh, an amazement. That they've never seen anything like this. I wonder if some of those scribes and Pharisees were a part of that crowd who were praising God because this man was made whole. Or they continue to fold their hands. Hmm, I still don't believe. It's always the skeptic, right? But Jesus' ability to fix the body proves his authority to forgive the soul. And that is the connection that Jesus makes. Okay, well I will go a step further through faith, the Bible says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And uh, so this faith is very simple, placed in Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus also heals the body, the forgiveness of the soul, and the healing of the body. We saw a lot of the healing of the body last week, and it was just such a great time. After service, I said, you know, listen, uh, I'm not going to go out on the patio. Well, I did eventually. But after service, I'm just going to be right down here. And if you need a touch from Jesus in a spiritual battle that you might be experiencing, or a physical infirmity, or an emotional... Uh, insecurity that is just overwhelming, then I'm just going to be up front. I'm going to do the same thing this week uh, after the service today. If you need prayer, if you need encouragement, if you need a touch of Jesus, and maybe part of that is actually embracing, accepting, and receiving the forgiveness of God upon your soul. And you can do that simply by confessing your faith in Jesus Christ. Forgive me of my sin. The Bible says if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus desires to mend and heal the soul and cure the soul that is inflicted with the disease of sin. But he also desires to touch our bodies and to heal us physically as well. So we see the criticism here, but Jesus proves really who he is. And the story continues on as uh, Jesus calls another one of his disciples, we saw four called in chapter 1. Here's a new one. His name is uh, Levi here in the text, which we also know to be Matthew. In verse 13, we read, Then Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitudes came to him, and he taught them. And Jesus passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Immediate faith, immediate trust, immediate obedience. And now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house. So apparently uh, there is this type of conversion that that Levi experiences. For him to walk away from the tax office and uh, the tax work that he was doing was basically severing any sort of hope that he had in working for the government anymore. Uh, the you know Matthew was a Jew, but he worked for the Roman authorities and a tax collector during this time was like kind of the bottom of the barrel. You were despised by the Jews. Basically, you were hated by the Jews. But this man was loved by Jesus. So this is really cool. He breaks the barrier again. He comes into this man's life because these tax collectors would would extort the people and they would make more money off the people and they were considered traitors because they were working for a government that was putting their people under oppression. And so there is this type of conversion. And uh, through this conversion, Levi throws a dinner party. He's like, I want my friends to meet this Jesus who has called me. And so he has all of his friends at the house. And they were dining together. That many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed Jesus. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating With tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in these verses we see Jesus criticized by the scribes now and the Pharisees for feasting or fraternizing with sinners. The conversion of Matthew is quite evident as he commits to following Jesus and the call of God upon his life. And now he just wants everybody to know about it. He's probably a man of, of, um, of resources and uh, he throws a party, invites his friends, and there is this wonderful, great celebration. And Jesus isn't I mean, he's not even thinking about these sort of things. In fact, Jesus said of himself, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And the words that he uses here in verse 17 really speaks to the core of his motive and of his mission to get down in the midst of the messiness and the dirtiness and the brokenness of people's lives. Because people who are self-righteous, who feel like, well, I don't need God, then what is Jesus going to do for them? Well, he can do a lot, but they're not ready to receive. But those who are sick, those who see the need for God, I don't know if you've ever experienced seasons in your life where you were just so distraught and you don't know where to turn and you call upon God. You say, God, are you here? Are you real? I need you. You're so desperate. There is an urgency and a cry and a call for God to work and move in your life. And the cool thing is that Jesus is so very close in those moments the Bible says he draws near to those who have a broken heart and, are, and saves such as, as a contrite spirit. And what I love about this is that Jesus is most comfortable with the, those who are least lovable. Especially in the eyes of the religious people. You know, the lepers were those who were the untouchables. Well, apparently in chapter 2, so are the sinners and the tax collectors, the untouchables. People who can't come into the presence of the holy ones, of the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, we are praying this morning for all of you who are on your way to church today. Whether you were invited by a friend or you come here regularly or you're trying it out for the first time. And we were praying that the doors would be open to Quest Church... And all the tax collectors and sinners, and I see a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. No, well, that's just a joke. But we're all sinners. We're all messy. We're all broken. That we would come, and listen, this is the most important thing, friends. That you would feel welcome. Because when Jesus is present, when Jesus is teaching, when Jesus is touching, when Jesus is loving, then it shatters all the stereotypes of tradition and religion, and rules, and regulations, and what do I wear, and what do I say, and how do I look? None of that matters when we come in contact with Jesus, who is the lover of your soul, and he says, let me sit down with you. Let me love you. Let me help you. Let me touch you. Friends, that is going to be real in every single one of our lives as we encounter him. Right, The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're mad that Jesus would mingle with messed up people. But you know what? The rest of us, even though the Pharisees are mad, the rest of us are what? It rhymes with mad because I'm just a rhymer here. I don't know. We're glad, aren't we? Yes. We're glad. And Remember that. We are glad when Jesus sits down in the messiness of our lives. And that my friends, is really what church is all about. That's what the body of Christ is about, is not being perfect, but being perfected by the one who is perfect, by the one who can heal, by the one who can touch. There's a conversion of Matthew. It's very powerful and real. He tells his friends about it and says, listen, I want you to meet this guy. And in this celebration, there's condemnation because the Pharisees, the actual definition of Pharisee is separated one. Oh, we're separate from the, we're holy, we're untouchable, we're, a, we're, a, we're above everybody, we're on this pedestal because we have a platform and we have influence and Jesus says that means nothing because you're, even though you know the letter of the law, you can quote the scriptures, you are missing out on the heart of the law or the intent of the law to be drawn close to God and touched by him. I just love these verses because it's very real and Jesus is doing something quite radical. And if Jesus doesn't do things radical in your life, then maybe we need to get a different Jesus. The real Jesus, I guess I would say. The real Jesus, the one who is moving in our lives. And so we see Jesus come on the scene. Call Matthew, forgive the paralytic. But then these last two sections here, and we'll kind of close with this, we see Jesus confronting some of the religious rules of the day. Verse 18 says, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now, I think this is a, a, an honest and real question. They're trying to understand, potentially, what is going on here? And Jesus is going to give clarification. In verse 19, he said, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Have you ever asked Jesus, Jesus, would you just help me out? I just need an answer. And then you get some answer that seems like it doesn't even address your original question. And Jesus does this quite often. He, he answers the question with something completely different and uh it's really drawing us into the story i mean jesus can't you just uh answer it quite simply but he's using a metaphor the first metaphor is marriage and uh, in the new testament we see that the church is used as a metaphor in marriage that the church is the bride and jesus is the bridegroom we're the bride of christ and as the bride of christ we are betrothed to Jesus we belong to him he loves us with the close and intimate love right and so this picture of Jesus as the bridegroom is a picture of celebration and we guess we'd have to understand the jewish wedding to really appreciate the celebration the week long in fact even month long celebration of a jewish wedding that would constantly just be a, a feast and celebration and gladness and joy and Jesus is expressing that when the bridegroom is present during the wedding celebration, we're not gloomy. We're happy. There's a much celebration. And Jesus is using that analogy to describe how, as the Messiah is present, as Jesus is present, celebration is appropriate. It's time to celebrate because Jesus is here. But he also says that in verse 20, the days will come. When Jesus is taken away from them. And they will fast in those days. So we see teachings later on in the New Testament, the New Testament epistles, of the practice of fasting and those moments of denying our, our physical nutrition to devote ourselves to spiritual concentration. That's basically what fasting is. And it is rooted in, in the spiritual connection. With God. It's not rooted in a diet or rooted in our weight, either gain or weight loss. It's rooted in a spiritual concentration and focus on God. If you've ever fasted, and I use the word if, but Jesus says, when you fast, he talks to his disciples, when you fast. You know, wash your face, take a shower, put on clean clothes, and don't make it look like you're fasting because those things that you are praying to God in secret, he will answer and reward you openly. Because if you look like you're fasting and looks like you're going through spiritual hell, so to speak, in fasting by denying your physical body of of nutrition, then, oh, you're going to get a reward. Oh, wow, that person's really holy. They're fasting. No, we don't want the reward or the acknowledgement from other people. But we are concentrated and focused when we deny our physical bodies of the nutrition that it needs. We're being, um, we're being uh, what's the word? Fed. <laughs> That's an easier one. <laughs> we're being fed in our soul by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's sweet communion and fellowship with him. And so there will come a time. And in verse 22, and he says, and no one puts, here's another example or analogy that Jesus uses no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Or else the new wine, uh, the, the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins. And so Jesus uses another analogy of um, <clears throat> excuse me, of this wine and new wineskins. I actually I, I missed verse twenty-one, and so in verse twenty-one it says, "And no one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment." Or it's a new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. So Jesus uses three analogies to basically teach or describe one simple principle. And that principle is that Jesus is bringing something new. The rigid Old Testaments of the Old Testament are no longer going to work in the in the radical movement or the radical fulfillment of Jesus in his ministry and in his grace. You see, Jesus didn't come uh, to patch the old but to preach the new. And uh, in this new, he's really coming up against the traditions and the norms and 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 the rules and the regulations of the religious establishment. Which, as we mentioned at the beginning of the message, was bringing this type of embarrassment to us. Uh, the the religious leaders. And we'll just end with this because Jesus breaks the Sabbath law here according to man. In verse 23, we read, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went with his disciples, they began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? This is really uh, the epitome of a legalistic perspective of the law and of people. I mean, you really have to be nitpicking, I guess, as you could say, really scrutinizing, really examining a person's life, behavior, and actions to pull out these types of Very trivial things. And in fact, it wasn't trivial to the religious leaders. Because they were under the same microscope, right? They were trying to follow all of these laws. And the Pharisees would conclude that these disciples violated four laws in breaking this Sabbath law. They were reaping, they were threshing, they were winnowing, and they were preparing. Basically, they were baking and cooking. You can't do this on the Sabbath. And uh, there is such a hyper critical and legalistic view, not only of Jesus, but of Jesus followers. And really a a legalistic person in this sense has unrealistic expectations of the performance of other people. And that's why there is such A tremendous amount of grace and of mercy in the eyes and in the actions and in the teaching and in the ministry of Jesus. Which, my friends, should also be quite evident as the church and as the body of Christ gathers together. Not critical on rules and regulations. It's not lawful. But Jesus goes on to say that have you not read what David did with the showbread? Which was this holy piece of bread in the temple. He ate it. You're not supposed to eat those things. Have you not read? Well of course they have read. But they didn't interpret properly. That individual necessity transcends ceremonial formalities. And there is a need. Jesus is present. I'm going to have our worship team come on up. But listen, I want you to stay with me here just as we kind of finalize a couple of takeaways. I think as we opened up this chapter, there was some tremendous insight into the help not only we receive, but also the help that we can give to other people as friends of faith. Faith and trust in Jesus. And really coming alongside and picking up the four corners of a Battered and broken friend or neighbor or family member, and picking them up and bringing them to Jesus. You can do that spiritually through prayer, but you can also do that by engaging them in conversation, also inviting them to church. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but on your way out in the foyer, and I believe on your way out up the stairs to the parking lot, there are small little invitation cards. They're business card sizes. And it says basically, hey, I want to invite you to church. Come and join me. These are great resources and tools that you can use to bring people to Jesus. Because I pray that whoever comes into this place week in and week out on Sundays. Or whether it's to the women's Bible study. Or the wonderful worship hula workshop we had yesterday. Or uh, our worship ministry. Or life groups ministry. Or students ministry. Or kids ministry. Or men's ministry. That when you connect. You're going to connect in a real and genuine sense of community where you can explore faith. You can grow in Christ. You can be challenged in your purpose and, and significance of priorities and what you're doing and serving and loving and living the Lord. That's what this is all about. Healing. But also we see that Jesus' top priority, listen, top priority is that your soul is cured. And the only way your soul is going to be cured is that it's forgiven by the great physician. And that has already been dealt with. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Jesus went to the cross to forgive you of sin. And you can do that very simply by acknowledging, confessing your sin, placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day is ascended up into heaven and coming back so that you can live for him. So this is a wonderful hope and a wonderful promise that we have in these chapters and verses. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these truths. You are the friend of sinners. Paul the Apostle would say, I'm the chief of sinners. Well, it's good that the chief of sinners met the friend of sinners. It's good. And maybe you might be thinking the same thing. Well, you don't know what I've done, you don't know where I've been. Sure, what that's true. I may not, but I do know one thing that Jesus does. He knows. He knows your business and he knows your address. Meaning he knows your comings and your goings, but he also knows where to find you. He's pursuing you with an everlasting love. Maybe today is the day to stop running and start receiving. Receive that forgiveness. Also, too, maybe you've got an infirmity. Maybe you have been bound to a sickbed of sorts. Jesus would desire to reach out and touch, to heal, to comfort, to mend, to restore, to strengthen you for his glory. You know, someone said about these verses forgiveness is the greatest miracle Jesus performs. It meets the greatest need, it costs the highest price, it brings the biggest blessing and delivers the longest results. Thank you for your forgiveness. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to Quest Church San Diego. If this podcast has been an encouragement to you, or if you would like to know more about Jesus, please email us at info at questsd.com. We'd love to hear from you. God bless you.